Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. And this is the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the ooky, the spooky, and the bizarre, and tries to find an answer. Um, what are we trying to find an answer to this week, Caroline? Well, this week, uh, we're starting another two-parter. Oh, so soon? <laughs> yeah. Are you sure we can handle it? I, I can handle it. Okay. Can I'm, you handle oh, it? Oh, I'm ready. Okay. Sean, as you know, I have always been really fascinated by Diana, the Princess of Wales. Yes. Princess Di. Mm -hmm. the, the former queen to be of England. Yes. I remember her. She was a purple bear and she had a rose on her <laughs> chest. And she was worth a lot of money. <laughs> Uh, the real princess, Di, um, I really admire her. She basically had to grow into adulthood in the public eye and deal with a publicly cheating husband uh -huh. and still act like a loving mother to William and Harry, who I'm sure people our age know very well. She also gave voice to important charitable causes around the world, including landmine awareness and AIDS. But she was no, by no means perfect. Uh, she was pretty open with her struggles with mental health and eating disorders as she got older. But I think she was someone who genuinely tried to do some good with her fame and notoriety because she was really a good person at heart. Okay, convince me. <laughs> well, Sean, with the new season of The Crown on Netflix, a whole new group of people are getting to know Diana's story for the first time. That's right. And uh, you should check in with our friends over at the Lords of Grantham if you want to uh, look at the crown. Yes, the Lords of Grantham podcast. Uh, they go over Downton Abbey, and now they're also doing the crown. So check it out. Uh, but aside from them, <laughs> I would say many people around our age may not know a ton about Diana's story and may not have even been interested in it until now. But our parents lived through the time where she was the biggest news in the world. Oh, I thought you were going to say our parents are horny for the crown. <laughs> yes. But aside from that, um, I think there's just this kind of generational gap when it comes to that story. It's mm -hmm. kind of similar to like the Bill Clinton, Monica Lewinsky type of story where it's sort of adult stuff. We don't really know about it. We know something's going on, but we don't really know. Yeah, I remember both of them being on the news quite a bit. Uh, this story is where I learned the word paparazzi from, mm -hmm. for sure. Yeah. Uh, some of us might even remember her tragic death in 1997. Uh, that's where I learned the word paparazzi yeah. from. Yeah, I was about to go into second grade at the time. I was still pretty young, but I remember it. I remember being very sad because she seemed so nice and, and just she was a beautiful princess and it just seemed unfair and weird that she would die. But, uh, you know, not a lot of people our age remember her impact unless they've read biographies on mm -hmm. her. But now that's changing. 
one of my best friends, for instance, uh, Sarah, one of our close friends as a couple, mm-hmm. uh, she blew through all four seasons of The Crown in the span of a week. So I was fielding messages from her like, Charles is such a piece of shit and, <laughs> and so on. And I know for sure she had no interest in the monarchy before this. <laughs> Definitely not their doings before, I don't know, now. <laughs> in the 80s and 90s, she just could not care. But now she does. Diana has become, for lack of a better word, a character now in the public consciousness for people in the millennial or Gen Z generations. And with that renewed interest, of course, comes renewed conspiracies about her death. Oh. Mm-hmm. So this is like a fun, a fun story well, about Diana's death. It's a combination. That's why there's two parts. Diana, Princess of Wales, also known colloquially, colloquially as... Princess Diana, or Princess Di, passed away from injuries sustained from a fatal car crash in Paris on the night of August 31st, 1997. Or did she? Well, some think the crash was only the beginning of the story. And I want to go into why that there are some similar conspiracy theories surrounding Diana's death as there are with like JFK and Marilyn Monroe. Okay. I I think it's all kind of in the same hemisphere. It's just... Not necessarily due to the American government. JFK's death and Marilyn Monroe's death? Or are you referring to the conspiracy that JFK had Marilyn Monroe killed? (laughs) Well, that's part of it. Um, But no, his death, Marilyn Monroe's death, you know, these kinds of Elvis's death. When a a huge figure like this dies, conspiracy theories pop up. Tupac. Tupac. Yeah. Now, I want to go through this as respectfully as possible. Because she's someone I admire even still. And if she did die in an accident, then I don't want to make it too, like, gross going through this story. Mm -hmm. Just like people did while she was alive. And, you know, I want to handle it pretty respectfully. But I am truly curious as to why these conspiracy theories abound about her death. Yeah. And why they persist to this day. So in this episode, we'll be going uh, through the backstory of Princess Diana and her history with the British royal family and also discuss her death and some of the initial sketchy things about what happened that fateful night. Okay. So that's going to be part one. The next episode, I'll go into the main conspiracy theories of why people think Diana was assassinated and not killed in an accident and who may have been the one or ones to order the hit. Very exciting. And I'll also go into the results of the official inquests into her death. And there were three. All right. So after next week's episode plops, uh, we plops. should... Drops. <laughs> we should expect um, some arrests to follow, right? Once you blow this thing wide open. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, <laughs> this podcast is going to be the one. Uh, for now, though, let's start at the beginning. And I'll recap her story up until that fateful night in Paris. Diana was born Lady Diana Spencer in Sandringham, England, on July 1st, 1961, to her mother Frances and her father John Spencer, 8th Earl Spencer. So she was already part of the hierarchy, mm-hmm. aristocracy. Inbred. Uh, <laughs> allegedly. <laughs> that's, a, that's a Sean theory, it's not mine. As a child, she led a privileged life, but a lonely one. 
She was the third daughter born to the Earl Spencer, and this was still a time when titles were still passed down father to son only. So she came into the world a disappointment because <laughs> they were convinced that she was going to be a boy. No heir. Yeah. Um, her younger brother was born, but a few years later, Charles Spencer. So he became the Earl after uh, their father died, but till then, Diana... She was not the favorite, I will say that. Earl Spencer and Francis didn't even name Diana for a week after her birth <laughs> because they were so determined to have a boy, they hadn't even chosen a girl's name. They were like, maybe a penis will come <laughs> if we just hope hard enough. Yeah, well, it didn't. Her parents divorced in 1967 when Diana was just six, and this violent breaking up of her family unit really traumatized her for the rest of her life. Speaking of trauma, she met Prince Charles, <laughs> son of Queen Elizabeth II and heir to the British throne, a few times throughout her life because she was part of a noble family and both of her grandmothers had served as ladies-in-waiting to Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother. What is a lady-in-waiting? Um, Back in the day, it would be like a lady of the bedchamber type of thing and you'd you were kind of like a glorified maid in a way, or like her little friends that would be around. Okay. Nowadays, it's more of like a friend thing, but you're also kind of a personal assistant, as far as I could tell. Okay. So these people might, since they're also aristocracy, they might not be getting her like a coffee, but they're helping her with just general stuff, giving her advice, things like that. Okay. Sort of a Fonsworth Bentley. Yeah, but this is like their official job. I <laughs> Fonsworth. Anyway, um, so they had served in ladies-in-waiting to the Queen Mother, who is Elizabeth II's mom, mm -hmm. and they remained close friends because the Queen Mother lived forever. She <laughs> she died in, like, what, 2002, I think? Mm -hmm. So she was around, and so were uh, Diana's grandmothers. Diana's, Diana's oldest sister, Sarah, actually dated Prince Charles seriously oh. for a time. But in 1980, he met the now 19-year-old Diana. Hmm. So she was 19 in 1980. How old was Charles? He was 32. Oh, Chuck. Yeah. He met her during a country weekend and took interest in her immediately. Oh, classy, Chuck. Mm-hmm. So following a whirlwind courtship, they married on July 29th, 1981. The wedding was one of the biggest TV events of all time, and it's hard to... You can't even com compare it to like a Super Bowl. So they met while uh, he was dating her sister and then he immediately dumped her he, sister for her? I mean, they definitely ran into each other at that point, but I think Diana was 16. Oh, okay. And they, they'd met when Diana was a kid because I think her and her brother, Charles, used to play with like Andrew and Edward, gotcha. Charles's younger brothers. I think they were closer in age. And uh, um, so she was nine Charles then, and Charles was like, was like 32. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, I mean, it's not that crazy. He would have been 22 when she was nine. So, uh, they married on July 29th, and a, an estimated 750 million people from around the globe watched on TV, all different time zones. Wow. Yeah. My own mom, uh, who I asked about this, said mm -hmm. she woke up that morning, and this was in New York, at 5.30 a.m., and, you know, the sun wasn't even up at this point, to watch the wedding and noted how there were thousands and thousands of people in the streets of London there to wish the bride and groom well. And the barely 20-year-old Diana seemed really incredibly shy and young 
during the ceremony. And I think if you could see this on YouTube, um, she looks like a kid. Like she's, and she's so she shy. She's a kid. Yeah. She was 20. That's it. Mm-hmm. So happily ever after, right? Sounds like it. Yeah. No. Okay. Podcast over. You guys, um, <laughs> show created by Sean McCabe. No, Kev- wrong. See, Charles had dated around for quite a while before getting married because it had initially been thought it would be best for him to sow his wild oats before settling down and, and getting ready to become king. Okay. Yeah. But he kind of sowed like too many oats. And there was a concern he was waiting too long because 32 at the time was pretty old for a future king to get hitched. So he rushed into this marriage with Diana. Well, this is exactly how old I got married. Yeah, but you're not the king. People not got married yet. much younger back in the day. Um, again, Diana was 19 mm-hmm. and this was vaguely normal. But her mind was older. Ugh. No, it wasn't. Diana said that including weekend trips as like a single date, they had probably gone out on 12 dates before tying the knot total. Whirlwind courtship. Yeah. This is romantic. While Charles was still hung up on one of the wild oats he'd sown, Camilla Shand by 1981 married and known as Camilla Parker Bowles. Oh, so that door is closed. There won't be any. uh, At least Diana doesn't have to worry about that. Charles had really wanted to marry Camilla, but his family, notably the queen herself, did not approve of Camilla as a wife for Charles and as a future queen of England. Olivia Coleman's not feeling it? <laughs> no. And it's kind of foggy why this is, aside from people just generally thinking she was unsuitable. Okay. The sense that I get, which is really gross, is basically the monarchy wanted Charles to marry someone innocent and virginal with no history to her and her dating life to create scandal. And Camilla, you know, she was Charles's age. She'd been around. And good on her. Who cares? Yeah. But, I mean, if you think about it, Charles had publicly banged half the single women in Britain and some non-singles, too. Right, but she's out there getting her freak on. That's a- Yeah, she, she publicly dated people. That's a niche niche. I'm not sure why it would have mattered too much about Camilla, aside from, like, good old-fashioned misogyny. So. Yeah. She gets married. Charles and Diana get married. They but have- isn't that royalty, though? Isn't that this whole thing very patriarchal oh absolutely um i think they only the queen only changed it in i want to say 2012 it could be even later um basically a decree saying that if any heir like if william had had a daughter first Mm -hmm. it would have the next she would have been the next in line it wouldn't have skipped over her and got to the first a younger brother yeah and that's only now the queen has been reigning for since 1953, however long that was, uh-huh. 70 years-ish. Mm-hmm. Um, and she only just changed that now. She's a queen. Yeah. In in A Song of Ice and Fire, they go further and they make it so you have to like, if there's only daughters, you then have to go to like the king's brother. Well, it used to be like that. Family. Yeah. It used to be like the uncle and stuff like that. But now, if, William, if Charlotte had been first born to William, she would have been the heir. Just happened to be George. So, Charles and Diana have two sons. The aforementioned princes William and Harry. Mm-hmm. But throughout this time, uh, Charles is also banging around with Camilla still. And apparently- Oh, Camilla likes to Camilla likes to get it. Yeah. 
And apparently Camilla had basically an open relationship with her husband, kind of an understanding. And they were both unfaithful to each other and they both knew about it. Oh, they're doing a Clinton thing. Yeah. So that, that's cool, right? Whatever. Whatever you got to do. No, it's not cool for Diana because she didn't know this was going to happen. Well, that's not how it works. <laughs> well, you know, if three people in the four were like, okay with it, there's still one person that's not. Yeah. It's got to have consent on all sides. Yep. She went into the marriage truly naively in love with Charles. She was only 20. She had a deep wish to create a stable and loving family around herself and for her children because she never really had that in her own childhood. Mm -hmm. But all she received was coldness after a while, first from the palace and eventually from Charles. All I want in my life is a stable, loving family for my kids. I'm going to raise them in the British royalty. But if you grow up in aristocracy, especially being born in the 60s or whatever, they're still it. They're still the pinnacle of like family and good values and things like that. Things are different now. As a lot because of what happened with Diana and all of that in the 80s and 90s, but to her they represent the ideal family. Even if it's not true, they still do. So Charles basically got sick of dealing with Diana's battles with depression and bulimia and her need for love and he He's ran like, Boy, oh boy, yeah. this is a lot. He ran back to Camilla the second things got tough. Now, I have to say, I do have some sympathy for Charles. For Chuck? Yeah. Well, he was in a fucked up situation, and it is clear that he really, truly loved Camilla and just wanted to be with her from the start. But most of the time, Diana bore the, fr the brunt of his frustration about the situation, and all she wanted was warmth from him and a happy family. I mean, remember, she was still basically growing up. <laughs> like, I def definitely didn't become at least more sure of myself and my wants and goals until, like, my mid to late 20s. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have to do all that soul searching, like, in front of the entire world. And speaking of the entire world, Sean, I can't emphasize enough how much Diana was a star. Scrutiny, I mean, she was an right? icon. Mm -hmm. She was initially shy, like my mom said, um, but she had this intrinsic charisma about her. Like people were just attracted to her, even if she wasn't saying anything. She was very beautiful, yeah, but I was there was say, she was real hot. <laughs> she was beautiful, but there was something more to her. She was just different than the royal family, and she was the exact kind of different that people wanted at this time. Um. She was also, have we mentioned she was a kindergarten teacher? Like she was, yeah, she, was, she, was she just loves a children. Sweet, yeah. She's just like a sweet person. Um, she quickly became the shining light of the royal family. And this was much to the chagrin of Charles and the royal family. Yeah, Olivia Coleman's not having yeah. it, right? Well, she doesn't want to be outshined by a younger, hotter model. <laughs> the royal family's jealousy only made things for Diana more difficult. And it made her more starved for the kind of affection from her family that she was receiving from total strangers. Yeah. You know, people would be telling her every day that they loved her, but Charles wasn't. Mm -hmm. So as the 80s bled into the 90s, the relationship was truly at a crisis point with Charles pretty much unabashedly cheating with Camilla, like everyone knew it. And so Diana finally found some fuckboys of her own. And the couple ended up engaging in a trial separation in 1992. This was once the breakdown of their relationship became public knowledge. So it took 
10 years at least. Yeah, I was going to say, this is years of like public um, facing co-cheating and stuff, right? Like yeah. the tabloids are full of their boyfriends well, and girlfriends. ish. And- Some of it still was like it was back in the JFK days where they just didn't report on such (laughs) tawdry things. But then it started to get more and more and they realized they could sell more papers, including these sexy stories. Yeah. And so they did. Duh. After Diana did an exclusive interview with BBC current affairs show Panorama in November 1995, the final nail went into the coffin. Diana basically in this interview like blows up the palace's spot on all sorts of things they tried to keep hush-hush, like her knowledge of the Camilla affair, how it had been ongoing for years, <laughs> and uh, Charles's unsuitability for kingship. Oh, so she's like just rampage mode, I don't care, here's all the stuff? Yeah, I mean, she doesn't come across as like, you know, your crazy ex-girlfriend or whatever. Uh-huh. She She seems very sad and lost and hurt, um, but at this point she... It's kind of a combination of she has no fucks left to give. And also, I think she she's still deep, deep, deep down in her heart really wanted things to work out. She also admitted in the interview that she had depression and had engaged in bulimia and self-harm for years. So, self-harm? Yeah, she would cut herself sometimes and she also attempted suicide. <laughs> um, and, you know, bulimia is self-harm. So this was like too much of the curtain being raised on the the tawdry inner workings of the royal family. Right. And the queen was like, oh, no, you don't. Uh And And she sicked all of her corgis on her. (laughs) Very adorably. Uh, No, hilariously, formally, she sent letters to Charles and Diana advising them to divorce. Separate letters. Ah. So she basically gave a royal order to, like, cut the shit. Yeah. And get out. And they officially did so, with the divorce being finalized in August 1996. Why'd they wait that long? Divorce was really not... I mean, the Anglican Church, the Church of England... Was created for the purposes of a king getting divorced. but he didn't get divorced, Sean, you see. He got the marriage annulled, his first marriage, because... Let's go back in time. um, His wife, Catherine was originally betrothed to his older brother. Um, and I think they had married and then he basically immediately died of illness. Mm-hmm. So she ends up with Henry because back in the day you used to marry your brother's widow. And um, she insisted that the original marriage had never been consummated. Right. So she was like, you know, we're all good because you're not allowed to <laughs> You weren't allowed to marry someone who had been divorced or who was widowed, but it had been with another man. Mm-hmm. It's a whole stupid thing. So when Henry put his eye on Anne Boleyn, he was like, well, the marriage wasn't legit anyway, so I can get this thing annulled. And that's kind of what happened. Gotcha. So till then. And, and from then on, it was just choppy, choppy. Yes. Well, some. Yes. Um, so there were divorces here and there. After this point, after Henry and Anne Boleyn, um, but no real heirs were doing this. Like this was still, if you're the king, this is what you're doing. So he he was kind of hoping that that she'd like get over it, Diana, and um, and they could you know do this thing because that that's what was supposed to happen. They weren't supposed to divorce. Well, 
they divorced. <laughs> Diana lost her title of Her Royal Highness, but still remained styled as Diana Princess of Wales and was still regarded as a member of the royal family because of her son William being in direct line to be king one day. Oh, of course. Yeah. So even though she was divorced, she was still royal. Diana initially still had her royal protection officers, but viewed them as potential spies that would report directly to the royal family. And this wasn't crazy because this sort of thing happened all the time. And she was even bugged and had her phones tapped sure, at different but, times. Sure, but what can they do now? Well, I don't know. But she procured her own independent bodyguards. And now Diana was free. Yay! Freer, right? And so was Charles, basically, because Camilla and Andrew Parker Bowles divorced in 1994, which probably had a little something to do with the public outing of Camilla's affair with Charles. I would think so, yes. I think Andrew had the... Oh, wait, they were cool with it, though. But Yeah, maybe... Andrew was fine with it, but he didn't want to be Charles's cuck to the world. Yeah, yeah, okay, I, so, I see it. Yeah, so that's kind of where we are by 1997. So it's a lot of backstory, but I think it's all really important for what's to come. Okay. Well, I can't wait to uh, get into it, even though the next part... Spoiler alert, it's going to get sad. Mm-hmm. We'll see you when we come back. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing Podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Lots of things are a struggle right now. School, work, even something as simple as going to the grocery store, it could feel overwhelming. But one thing that shouldn't be overwhelming is accessing mental and emotional care. That's where BetterHelp comes in. BetterHelp is the leader in online counseling with over 4,000 licensed counselors on the site and over 500,000 people who have gotten counseling to date. The mission of BetterHelp is to make professional counseling accessible, affordable, and convenient. So anyone who struggles with life's challenges can get help anytime, anywhere. I've been using BetterHelp for the better part of this year, and honestly, I don't know how I would have gotten through 2020 without it. And, of course, Sean and Poe. When I need to talk to my counselor, I can just text her and I can schedule chats, phone calls, or video calls for longer sessions. This means I have flexibility to set a session during the week, or during busy weeks, I can just shoot her a message here and there when I have time. Take control of your mental and emotional well-being. BetterHelp is a great place to start. For 10% off your first month's subscription of BetterHelp, go to our podcast link at www.betterhelp.com slash scary and see how good it can feel to push past the struggle and find hope in a new day. That's www.betterhelp.com slash 
A-I-N-T-I-T-S-C-A-R-Y for 10% off your first month of BetterHelp. Get professional counseling anytime, anywhere, because you deserve to be happy. Welcome back. We have set the stage, and now we are ready for a tragedy, Caroline. Tell us about it. Well, Diana tragically had just one year to live her own life after her divorce before she died in 1997. In that time, she seriously dated a British-Pakistani heart surgeon named Hasnat Khan, who many of her close friends referred to as the love of her life. There were varying accounts as to why the relationship broke up, but she stated that he ended the relationship. Though, that has been conflicted with Khan's own testimony. Oh, he said she dumped him? Yeah, and he said she... Yes. (laughs) He said she ended the relationship. Yes, but she said he did. So, she said it was mostly due to his not wanting to be in the public eye and his desire to marry someone within his own culture because he was a devout Muslim man. I see. Within a month of the breakup, Diana had begun a relationship with Dodi Fayed, the son of multimillionaire Mohammed Al-Fayed, Egyptian businessman and owner of posh British department store Harrods. Oh, she had a thing for Arab men. <laughs> I guess so. Um, some people think that, you know, she started dating Dodie so soon after to kind of get him jealous. And what, what better way to get him jealous, I guess. <laughs> it was with Dodie Fayed that Diana was traveling on that faithful August night in Paris when their car crashed, killing three of the four passengers. Yes, and this is when they they were being uh, pursued by paparazzis, right? Yeah. Paparazzi (laughs) is plural. I'll go through that. Um, Let's start with the crash, and this is just the basics to start with. Okay. Dodie and Diana were dining at the Hotel Ritz in Paris, which is another Al-Fayed holding. He owned the hotel. The paparazzi had reached a fever pitch with Diana that summer because her fling with Dodie had become incredibly public uh-huh. with photos of the pair fetching like bonkers money um, because there's no social media at this time. So one picture is hard to get. And if you got it, you've got the rights to it. The most expensive paparazzi photo of all time, uh-huh. still, um, which is one of Diana and Dodie kissing on the Alphide yacht just a month before their deaths, nabbed that paparazzo $6 million. Wow. Mm-hmm. So with a single photo able to turn you into a millionaire, it's easy to see why the paparazzi were so frenzied at this time. Yeah, it's like, um, it's a mad, 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 mad world. Mm-hmm. Now, can you explain that reference for people our age? It, Rat Race was based on it with <laughs> Seth Green. Okay. <laughs> Great. So Dodie Fayed felt like he could trick the paparazzi waiting to pounce outside the Ritz and leave through the back entrance with Diana. Bodyguard Trevor Reese Jones, who worked for Mohammed Al-Fayed himself, and Henri Paul, who is the acting security manager of the Hotel Ritz and another Al-Fayed employee. Uh, Paul would serve as the driver back to Dodi's Paris apartment. Mm-hmm. The paparazzi, though, were not fooled, and they followed in close pursuit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're not going to get all of them. No. And I don't know if they even got most of them. Henri Paul attempted to elude the paparazzi by speeding to the apartment. I keep hearing RuPaul. Henri. Henri. 
Uh, he reached speeds of over 100 miles per hour. And this is in miles, not kilometers. Um, so it's a lot. It's very fast. But he lost control of the 1994 Mercedes-Benz W140 at the entrance to the Pont d'Alma tunnel. The car struck the right-hand wall, swerved to the left of the two-lane road, and then collided head-on with the 13th pillar of the tunnel at an estimated speed of 65 miles per hour. This is just the crashing speed after they had already hit multiple things. Right. So that's more than twice the tunnel's speed limit. This crash occurred around 12.23 a.m. Paris time. Paparazzi on motorcycles swarmed the sedan. Some rushed to help and some just took pictures. Of course. Gross. Uh, the police arrived on the scene about 20 minutes after the, or 10 minutes after the crash, with an ambulance arriving five minutes after police. That's a pretty slow response time. That's not great. It's not great, but it's not crazy, right? Several photographers were taken into custody immediately. Uh, Doty and driver Henri Paul had died on impact. Bodyguard Trevor Reese Jones was unconscious in the front passenger seat, and he was like all fucked up. I mean, his whole face was broken. And Diana, in the rear passenger seat, was injured but conscious. So she's the only one awake at this point. Okay. An off-duty physician at the scene, Frédéric Mellier, uh, he attended to Diana and reported she had no visible injuries but was in clear shock. Diana was extracted from the wreck a half an hour after police arrived and went into cardiac arrest and received external cardiopulmonary resuscitation, CPR. Yep. After this, her heart began beating again. She, they didn't know why it had stopped in the first place? They figured there was stuff that they couldn't see. Mm-hmm. She might have had a broken arm. They weren't sure about that. That was like one thing that went around. Um, but she had, there was not a lot of visible injury aside from your standard bruises and scrapes and cuts and stuff. If you tell me she died of a broken heart, I'm going to be very <laughs> upset. She was moved to the ambulance 18 minutes after her heart started beating again, and the ambulance left the scene a bit over 20 minutes after that. It arrived at the Pitre Salpietre Hospital about half an hour later. So for those trying to keep track of times here, the ambulance arrived at the crash scene at about 12.35 a.m. Mm -hmm. and didn't make it to the hospital until 2.06 a.m. Wow. Mm -hmm. Why? I'm going to go into that, but that's definitely something that people bring up. Uh-huh. Upon a closer examination, it became clear Diana's heart had been displaced to the right side of her chest. Sorry, what? Yeah, tearing her pulmonary vein and pericardium, but that's something I guess they, they didn't see. Despite rigorous resuscitation attempts, she died in the hospital at approximately 4 a.m., and her death was announced to the media at 6 a.m. Your heart can just be jolted loose and thrown across your body to the other side of your chest? I assume she had broken ribs as well. And like it said, she tore the pulmonary vein and like all that stuff. So, not great. And yes, your heart can apparently be displaced. And this is all internal injury from just bouncing around the inside of the vehicle, right? Presumably, yeah. That's I mean, but this this car probably hit the first thing. Not the, not the final pillar, but the first thing at over 100 miles per hour. Mm -hmm. So so you ask, what's fishy about this? It's tragic, for sure, but the car was speeding in a claustrophobic tunnel that's been called by many people a dangerous structure and, like, really bad construction. Mm -hmm. 
but there are a number of admittedly suspicious details to the accident just off the off the top. There is one traffic camera inside the tunnel, but it was conveniently not working the night of the accident. That sounds inconvenient to me, Carrie. <laughs> well, depends on whose perspective we're oh. talking about. Yes. Diana habitually wore a seatbelt, but on this occasion had not put it on. However, the rear right seatbelt, which where she was sitting, it was found to be defective, which people think maybe is the reason she didn't put it on. But that's it's a coincidence. It's a very interesting coincidence. Yeah, she didn't want to make a big scene in front of her new boyfriend. She, the seatbelt's not working. Eh, whatever. Mm-hmm. One fact that people bring up is how, despite seven paparazzi being arrested on the scene, the French police basically treated it like a basic traffic accident. Um, evidence was deeply compromised. The crushed up Mercedes, which would be exhibit A in any case. You would think. It was thrown onto a flatbed truck and bounced through the streets of Paris on the way to its destination. Well, this is this sounds like incompetent policing. Yeah. Then, within hours, the crime scene was swept up and hosed down. Great! Let's make sure there's no traces of any <sighs> valuable evidence mm-hmm. left. The police did, however, find smears of white paint along the right side of the Mercedes, showing the Mercedes had contact with another car. And this was a white car, obviously. Right. It took days to figure out what the car's model was, um, but every kind of official brand car paint is traceable. I think this is actually one of the reasons how they found the Green River Killer. Oh, really? Yeah. Because every brand pretty much, I mean, they only use the same color on certain cars, right? Mm -hmm. And those are only made by certain places. So you can kind of narrow it down. So eventually they found out this kind of paint was only ever used for the Fiat Uno. Wow. Between the years 1983 and 1987. So you've got a specific model and four years? Mm -hmm. Wow. So keep that in mind for a second. Fiat Uno. Mm -hmm. Let's discuss the pursuing vehicles because this is going to keep coming up. The motorcycles? Yeah. So paparazzi were following the Mercedes mostly on motorbikes. It was just the easiest way for them to, you know, hop on and off. It's Europe. Tiny streets. Yeah, sure. Exactly. Though they'd caught up to the Mercedes at the red light before the tunnel, according to Detective Colin McLaren, who is the investigator for the documentary Princess Diana's Death Mystery Solved, <laughs> the Mercedes approached... We did it. <laughs> he did it. The Mercedes approached the tunnel at a speed upward of 100 miles per hour. So this would have left any regular motorbikes far behind. Like, these aren't even mostly motorcycles. Right. You're just little... Yeah. So... Dirt bikes. Yeah. However, in the media, at least, the blame for the crash the crash fell heavily on the shoulders of the paparazzi chasing the car. Yeah, I, I remember. Yeah. According to witnesses, there was the screeching of tires just before the crash, as if the car was, like, braking sharply. And there were three motorcycles surrounding the Mercedes at the time, along with a mysterious white car seen leaving the crime scene, which they said was a white Fiat Uno. Okay. Let's find the driver. No problem. Well, police wanted to find this Fiat because at worst, it very likely had a hand in causing the crash. And at best, it was part of a hit and run. So either way, they want to figure this out. Mm Mm-hmm. Colin McLaren found that it was likely the Mercedes skidded to avoid the Fiat near the entrance to the tunnel because there was an on-ramp that merged into the road just before the tunnel. I mean, it's very stupid. Yeah. So this is like, I think it's coming off of some sort of highway. Mm -hmm. And then 
the main road that the car was driving down, they merge into one just before the tunnel. Right. And there's also... Like all those horrible entrances on the Merritt uh, Parkway that are uh, uh, just, yes. just right into traffic. Yes. And this is also... Um, there's like a, a bump. It's like a, a small hill right at this point. So you're blind coming up on, up the entrance ramp? No, it's like down. It's You go down into the tunnel. Okay. It's crazy. Uh, so it probably skidded to avoid the Fiat near the entrance to the tunnel and scraped down the side of the Fiat, didn't avoid it completely, became airborne over this bump because it was going so fast. Yes, this is before it even enters the tunnel? Mm-hmm. The side tires would hit the wall in front of the tunnel opening. So again, if you're picturing, it's like an overpass kind of tunnel. Yep. yep. You're going down into it. There are two walls on each side. Mm-hmm. And like it's heading for the right walls. side. Mm-hmm. So it hit that. And he found skid marks at the scene and a large tear in the right front tire of the Mercedes. So that's kind of makes sense. He like figured out how this crash happened. So it's hurtling into the tunnel already having hit two things, the Fiat and the wall, and it's not in control anymore. And then we know the rest. 13th pillar, head on 65 miles an hour. Yeah. I mean, we kind of know the rest because the Fiat was seen fleeing the scene of the accident. So who was driving it? Were they a a part of the plot to cause the accident? How many white Fiats from 84 to 87 were in, you know... Well, I could tell you it was about 4,000. Oh, no. Because the... Drive another car, Europe. <laughs> because the people who had seen it, Paris does this thing where their their license plate has a certain number. So okay, you can that. tell... Caroline, we do that as well. No, I mean, the Paris license plate, that city has its own number. That's oh. part of every Paris license plate. Okay. <laughs> you fucking dweeb. <laughs> like an area code. Yes. It's like an area code for that city. It's on a car. I think it's two numbers. <laughs> Shit. So the person who saw it said, this is a Paris. Like, I know what a Paris number is. This had a Paris number. I don't know the rest of the numbers because it was probably going fast, but it could tell. Mm-hmm. So one possible ID for the driver is Lee Van Tan. He owned a white Fiat Uno that mere weeks after the accident had been hastily painted red. Oh, what do you know? There's still a bunch of like white on the inside of the car. Like it's so bad. And he's leaning on it like, yeah, I just, there's a bucket of red paint sitting on the ground. And he's like, I just wanted more speeding tickets. (laughs) Tan insists that he was working that night, but you know, he fits the description of the driver given by the eyewitness. It was, uh, you know, like a man, short man, dark hair, um, and they also had seen a black and tan dog with an orange muzzle in the back seat, and he had a black and tan dog that used a muzzle. Well, that's um, it's pretty specific. It's yeah. a lot of indicators. Mm-hmm. Okay. Tan's father said years later, "quote I do not want to believe he was in the tunnel that night, but I know he has said things that just do not add up. He behaved very strangely at the time, and has behaved strangely since." What I do know is that the Fiat was painted only hours after the crash that killed Princess Diana. Wow. His, his father said that? His own father, yeah. Tan later admitted that he was, in fact, driving in Paris that night, but was not near the accident scene. Oh, Jesus Christ. 
but he couldn't remember what he was doing, where he went, or who he saw. Great. <laughs> he just knew I wasn't just there. Wasn't sure as sure as hell wasn't there. Yeah. The police never analyzed the left side of his Fiat, which would have been the part of the car to scrape against the Mercedes. Right. And Tan was eliminated from the investigation. Well, the second part doesn't make any sense. The first part, <clears throat> I don't know if scraping up his Fiat again is going to do you any good if he's already repainted, is it? Well, they might be able to find traces of the black Mercedes paint, possibly, mm. underneath. Mm. Who knows? The French authorities at this point just stop searching for the driver anymore it's not our royals (laughs) yeah but maybe it really wasn't tan maybe that's why they stopped looking what about paparazzo james andenson sean um what about him andenson was a well-known photographer that had been following diana that summer taking photos he flew from sardinia to paris on the same day diana and dodie did but he could not prove his whereabouts on the night of the crash same day diana and dodie did Mm -hmm. a lot of these so, why does it matter that he didn't have an alibi? Well, because... Well, it usually does with crimes. <laughs> well, why him specifically? He owned a white Fiat Uno, and uh-huh. he lived in France, in Paris. So, well, along with 4,000 other people. Well, it was a pretty big coincidence, because he had basically been stalking two of the victims all summer. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, this car was also repainted shortly after the crash and sold by Andenson in October of that year. It's so like two months later. Okay case closed yeah, right what's, what's his i mean let's ask him oh we can't because in may 5th 2000 police found a badly burned body in the wreckage of a car deep in the woods in the south of france the body was andenson his death was officially ruled a suicide christophe Pellat, who was the first fireman on the scene insisted that quote I saw him at close range, and I'm absolutely convinced he had been shot in the head. Twice. What? So he shot himself in the head twice, and then set his car on fire. Is what Well, pr- presumably he set his car on fire first. And yeah. shot himself in the head twice? Well, that's one guy's... That's one guy's... Um testimony and i could see him being racked with guilt over um you know hit and running princess diana and then uh killing himself or hear me out being murdered by the british royals as part of a cover-up well a week after andenson's body was finally identified and his death was made public three masked men broke into the office of the sepa agency where andenson worked They made off with several cameras, laptops, and hard drives. One hostage of the three men, um, they were convinced these men were part of the French Secret Service. Why? Just what they said. Based on on what? That's fascinating. I assume based by what they they were talking about or whatever, or how they did things. Some people think... They're like, oh, we'll have to remember this next time we save the president. (laughs) The French president. We call him a premier or something. What do they call him? Something. I think it's a president, actually. Continue. (laughs) Some people think this break-in and robbery was related to Andenson's death. So, interesting. It it is. uh, I just love, I would love more connective tissue with this one. 
I would love to know, uh, oh, and there was this thing on that hard drive they stole. I mean, there were other details, like the press said that Andenson was about to get a divorce and his wife was cheating on him and stuff like that. And his wife and coworkers were like, that's not true. Oh. So why did the press say this? Depends on who fed him that information. Interesting. Are we going to get into Andenson more next week? Unfortunately, that's like the bulk of it, but it's still pretty weird. So back to the crash. Mm -hmm. Eyewitness Francois Levistre uh, testified that in his rearview mirror, one of the motorbikes cut across the front of the Mercedes. There was a big white flash and the car started to zigzag. Then it crashed. I thought it could be an assassination or a gangland hit. Wow. Another driver behind the Mercedes saw something similar, including the bright flash of light. So there were multiple eyewitnesses on this one. So maybe the flash was the flash of a camera, which could have disoriented driver Henri Paul, even though they probably couldn't have caught up to him. Maybe someone did. There certainly were more. We know there were cameras in the area. We don't know there were high powered rifles in the area, which Mm -hmm. I assume is your next, uh, the next possibility. Well, we're going to talk about the flash for a minute. Because former MI6 agent Richard Tomlinson, now MI6, is James Bond MI5 or MI6? MI6. Yeah. So he is confirmed to be a secret agent formerly. British intelligence. Mm -hmm. Richard Tomlinson gave a sworn statement to the French inquiry in May 1999 that MI6 had been involved with the crash. Hmm. He also stated Henri Paul was an MI6 agent. And that Diana's death mirrored plans he saw in 1992 for the assassination of then-president of Serbia, Slobodan Milosevic. Oh. By using a strobe light to, bl- to blind his chauffeur and cause an accident. He walked back these claims years later, claiming a faulty memory. <laughs> but he did recall the use of strobe lighting for this purpose being part of his MI6 training. So he's... And he said that... RuPaul was the Henri Paul was an agent, but he also died in the crash, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, it's not a great mission. <laughs> well, you know, another strange factor in this accident is the driver, Henri Paul. So, along with the paparazzi, he commonly receives most of the blame for the deaths. Well, it- he was driving a hundred <laughs> miles an hour and slammed into the wall of a tunnel. Yeah. So. Well, it was said that Paul was drunk driving that night. In fact, one headline soon after the accident stated he was, in all caps, drunk as a pig. Um, was this the New York Post? I don't know. But the media started spreading the notion that Paul's drunk driving had caused the accident even before the test results came back from the pathologist or were announced to the public. But when they came back, he was drunk? Okay. His blood alcohol level was over three times France's legal limit. All right. Well, I'm not going to play the fiddle form too much on people jumping the gun (laughs) to judgment. Well, the blood test was a little odd. His uh, personal doctor testified that he suffered from depression and, yes, was concerned about drinking. So the doctor prescribed him Prozac and a drug to combat alcohol addiction. And he was taking both the night of the crash. But in Paul's first blood sample, there are no prescription drugs found there at all interesting so could the samples have been switched interesting 
The pathologist was admittedly haphazard in their investigation. <laughs> um, they didn't even bother to label the samples. What's going on with these French cops? <laughs> I don't know. They left them unlabeled in the fridge to be labeled by someone else the next day. It's not the leftover potato salad. Yeah. You're not me. You're a detective. <laughs> Detect. <laughs> Friends and family of Paul swear he wasn't an alcoholic, while what his doctor said would seem to contradict that. But Paul was also off-duty before being called back to the Ritz for Dodie and Diana, and he was seen that night at his local pub having a few drinks. Okay, so done. At the Ritz, he only had two drinks, Ricard's, which wouldn't have alone put them him at three times the legal limit at the time of the crash. Because again, you're also thinking that he's sobering up from at least the earlier ones. And Well, I was going to say, if he didn't know he was working, he could have had eight pints at the bar before he came over and had the two drinks with, with Diana and Chuck. By the way, he shouldn't have had those two drinks. Sure, but... Either way. Yeah. Um, he might just not have known that he was going to be working unexpectedly, and he could have made his way up to that amount. Now, I've seen the video. It's like more just rapid pictures, security pictures um, of the halls of the Ritz uh, from that night. And I have to admit, he looks pretty normal on the security footage. Um, he's not like swaying or anything like that. But many people with drinking problems are able to appear perfectly normal to the average eye. That night, he was also continuously smoking cigars. And, you know, at this time, you could smoke inside. So he was smoking in the hotel. And that could have masked the smell of alcohol on his breath. So it would have clouded the obviousness of his drunkenness. Sure. Now, here's another little bugaboo with the blood tests. In the two French tox lab tests, Paul was found to have a 12.8 carbon hemoglobin saturation, um, which is a combination of blood's iron-carrying pigment and carbon monoxide. Okay. You, you have to know that meant nothing to <laughs> it me meant so nothing far. To me either. Here's what it means. Okay. A smoker normally has about 10% as they're constantly smoking. Mm -hmm. So the result of 12.8% is not like crazy unusual. Especially because he's been chomping on big black cigars all night. Mm -hmm. But another test, backed by the opponents of the official findings, showed Paul had a 20.7% per, 20 saturation of carbon monoxide, basically, in his blood at the time of his death. So if that's accurate, it would have meant that Paul's blood had 40% saturation of carbon monoxide a few hours earlier, and he would have scarcely been able to function at all. From from what, smoking? That's the thing. These findings have led some to question if Paul's blood could have been switched or even just mistakenly, oops, because there was no labels on them. Um, with that of a suicide victim sharing the same morgue. Oh, Jesus Someone Christ. that had killed themselves in a by car? carbon monoxide inhalation. Yeah. Oh, what do you know? And there was someone like that in the morgue? Um, I'm, I couldn't find definite data on that but gotcha. that's that's been like a hypothesis and mercedes themselves even came out and said because there was some speculation that um the airbag going off or like you know him hitting his head or something on the airbag he could have inhaled some sort of carbon monoxide from that but they said that it wasn't possible i'm so sure mercedes they were. themselves was like it's not us i'm sure they were in a hurry to go like oh our airbags will not kill you yeah, <laughs> yeah. so so that's weird, yeah. just in general. 
Um, another frequently cited bit of evidence toward conspiracy is the incredible amount of time, which you mentioned, between the initial crash and Diana making it to the hospital, which was about an hour and a half total, maybe more. Now, to us in America, this sounds totally nuts. We're used to ambulances like throwing on those sirens and speeding through traffic to get to point A, from point A to point B, like yeah. super fast. How far is the hospital? Not far at all. But in France, they do things differently than we do. In many ways, I'm sure. <sighs> but um, instead of rushing someone in a medical emergency to the hospital as quickly as possible, they try to administer as much medical care as possible on the scene. Oh, okay. That's just how they do it. They tried to do so and very slowly extracted Diana from the car. But once she was removed, she went into her first cardiac arrest. And so they did CPR. Mm -hmm. Then when she was in the ambulance, the ambulance passed the Hotel Dieu Hospital on the Ile de la Cité uh, en route to the Piete Salpietre Hospital. So why didn't they stop at the first hospital? Some people say, well, the second was more equipped for cardiac emergencies, like Diana's. Okay. So. But surely it'd be better to get her to a hospital. Well, they skipped the first one. And they were also going very, very slowly, like driving very, very slowly. Why? They said this was because they didn't want to put Diana's body into further shock with intense movement or speed. And it didn't help much because she had a second cardiac arrest anyway during the transport. Yeah. So. And also, I don't know. I, there, I, this this says to me of like covering their butts of this is how we do things here. But that whole, it, oh, okay, great. So you, Ed, you, had, you administered as much medical attention as you could on the scene and on the way. And you think that that's um, good enough? Because you didn't realize her heart was on a different side of her chest. So I don't think the medical care in the field was good enough. No, certainly not. I mean... Her heart was on the right. Yeah. It was It was in a different place. Don't you think you would have noticed that when you were doing the CPR? <laughs> you would like to think so, Sean. So that's a weird thing. Um... And finally... I might come out of this with a strong anti-French bias. That might be the only thing you convince <laughs> no. me of. Anti-French police. I'm not trying to. French, I'm just... French just EMTs. Just trying to deliver the facts. Diana and Dodie typically traveled with a professional driver, while two bodyguards traveled close behind in a separate car. And this was their protocol so that if anything were to happen, there was backup, like two different cars. However, at the last minute, Dodie changed his plan and insisted that Henri Paul, not a professional driver, just the security director for the hotel, mm -hmm. would drive them and one bodyguard, because two wouldn't fit in the car, in order to evade the paparazzi, with them leaving secretly at the back of the hotel. It's surprising this plan was agreed to by all parties, especially the security guards. Well, especially, I, I would say, Henri Paul. He's like, he's six beers deep, he just had a couple of drinks, and well, they're like... Oh, where you go. Yeah. The thing about Henri Paul is he was basically up for a promotion. The main director of security had recently stepped down and retired. So I think people think that he was trying to impress Dodi and thus his boss, Mohammed Al-Fayed, mm -hmm. hopefully get this job. Plus, he was a secret MI6 agent. Yeah, too. Um, no one's quite sure what caused this change 
from what they usually did, aside from maybe Dodie trying to impress his princess by evading the hordes of photographers and, you know, having a peaceful drive over to the apartment, I guess. Give it a rest, Dodie. Yeah, well, he did. And, uh, <laughs> sorry. And so this is seen as suspicious, this change in plan by some people. Mm-hmm. But who, whose call was it? Sounds like it might have been Dodie's, so. Yeah, but, you know, everyone agreed to it. Yeah, so. but he, he did. He is dead, yes. R.I.P. So that's it on the night of the crash for now. But next week we'll discuss the main reasons behind why people think Diana may have been assassinated, who would have ordered the hit, the official inquests into her death, and even some fringe theories involving Jesus Christ. Oh, I can't <laughs> wait for that one. That's going to be my favorite. Mm -hmm. So that's the end of part one. When there was only one set of skid marks, that's when I was carrying the car. <laughs> or your underwear. <laughs> oh, no. Anyway. Caroline. Sorry. It's not that kind of skid mark. Oh. You might be surprised to know that not all serial killers are straight, cisgender white men. And the victims of true crime are not a monolith either. She's Wendy and I'm Beth. And together we host Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color, a true crime podcast. Together we take deep dives into the true crime stories about marginalized and minoritized perps and victims that often go untold. We also provide the context and nuance that these stories deserve. At Fruit Loops, we're serving up true crime with a side of history, society, culture, and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loop Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're here, which means you love podcasts. But are you looking for another kind of entertainment on the go? Audible is the leading provider of spoken word entertainment and audiobooks, ranging from bestsellers to memoirs, news, business, and more. By signing up for a free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash scary, you'll receive access to thousands of titles with one credit toward any audiobook and two Audible originals, free during your trial and then with subscription each month after. Personally, my favorite Audible title is also my favorite book, It by Stephen King. I went into this audiobook ready to judge because I've loved this novel since I was a kid, but between the stellar production value and the truly breathtaking narration performance by actor Steven Weber, I was 100% all in. If you like this podcast, and have a strong stomach, I think you will be too. Not into audiobooks? No problem. With podcasts, theatrical performances, guided meditations, and more, Audible offers something for everyone. So what are you waiting for? Get started now. And hey, you'll be helping support the podcast. Visit our link at www.audibletrial.com slash ain't it scary for a free trial. That's www.audibletrial.com slash A-I-N-T-I-T-S-C-A-R-Y. Audible. Listen more. We are back to the Bizarre Bazaar this week for another follow-up on the Forest Fen treasure. You've got to be shitting me. <laughs> That's what I thought, Dude, too. This thing again? Yeah. As you may remember from pre previous news segments, we reported that the treasure had been found, that Fen himself had passed away. Uh, yeah, super basic, returning all the way back to basics in case you didn't hear the first one. This uh -huh. is a rich guy who uh, left behind a treasure hunt. 
Yes, basically. And someone had also been arrested in connection with his own search for the treasure, but we still didn't know the identity of the finder himself. Well, now we do, Sean. And this was literally a chest of, like, gold and rubies? Um, we don't know everything that was in there, but it's, like, antiques, gold, the whole works. This is literally breaking news as we record because this statement was released today at medium.com where the finder had originally and anonymously reflected on Fenn's passing and his own discovery of the Forest Fenn treasure. Wow. Any highlights? Yeah. Well, the finder, who we can report is named Jack Stiff, came forward today to disclose his own identity due to the fact that, as he stated... Quote, the U.S. District Court for New Mexico has ruled that Forrest's estate must provide some of my personal information to a woman I do not know and with whom I have never communicated who has, bought, who has brought a meritless suit against me. This would make my name a matter of public record, so I chose to come forward today. So he's being a little bit of a bitch about it. Though. Well, the case, according to Stuff, is a baseless one having to do with his search for the treasure brought by Chicago real estate attorney Barbara Anderson, who alleges that he located it by hacking her texts and emails and stealing her solution to where it was located. Well, did he? Well, the thing is, she believed the treasure was in New Mexico and the case is going forward in the state. But the treasure was, by all accounts of the finder and Forrest Fenn, found in Wyoming, which is nowhere near New Mexico. This, this does sound like a, bear, a pretty meritless case then. Yeah. Jack previously worked in comedy writing for sites like Wonket and BuzzFeed before leaving due to controversy surrounding some jokes and articles he'd written. Did we get a look at what those were? Uh, one of them was a, a, a tasteless joke about Trig Palin. Sarah's son with Down syndrome. Ah, okay. But he's now 32, a medical student, several years wiser, and apparently a treasure chest richer. Hey, another 32-year-old. Yeah, you could have found a treasure chest by now, Sean. I could have married Princess Diana. I could, well, I married better. Oh, well, I mean, I don't believe that, but aw. Uh, but I didn't find the treasure chest. That would have been nice. Yeah, I would have liked that too. And by this age, Alexander had conquered the known world. Uh, let's talk about something less depressing. What, what, what's this guy doing? <laughs> well, in the Medium piece he wrote, he goes on to discuss how he searched for the treasure for two years, finding that this past June 6th in Wyoming. He says, quote, to be clear, I am not and was never employed by Forrest, nor did he pick me in any way to retrieve the treasure. <laughs> like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? Well, there is some thought that, you know, Everything wasn't on the up and up, but it's just, it sounds mostly like people bitter that they didn't find it first. Well, I'm sorry, Jack, that I said you were being a bitch about this. You're being a, a crusader for justice, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> mm -hmm. Stiff added as explanation for his it, anonymity. It, it, it was bitchy, though. <laughs> for the past six months, I have remained anonymous, not because I have anything to hide, but because Forrest and his family endured stalkers, death threats, home invasions, frivolous lawsuits, and a potential kidnapping. All at the hands of people with delusions related to his treasure. I don't want those things to happen to me or my family. So we'll definitely be keeping up to date with this case and the story of the treasure. I'm just surprised we have an answer to who the finder is so soon. Me too. But, uh, um, and Jack, we're not going to bother you. We're not going to reach out to you. But if you're listening, 
we want you to reach out to us. <laughs> yes, in case you're listening. Because I'm sure he, we, you know, you're probably a Patreon backer already. Oh, more on that in a moment. <laughs> and that's uh, that's it for the Bizarre Bazaar this week and our news. I love it. Uh, Godspeed, Jack. I'm sure he's going to win that lawsuit, no problem. Yeah, probably. If he loses it, I want to go file a lawsuit in Mexico. <laughs> New Mexico. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Um, all right. Well, um, take a listen to this break, you guys. It's a really, really good one. Thanks, as always, for listening to another episode. We're so glad to have you with us as we talk about this uh, incredibly depressing topic. Um, <laughs> it's interesting, though. It is. It, it's fascinating. And uh, I can't wait to um, dig into all the, all the bullshit of it all next week. <laughs> That's my favorite part. Of course. Um, I mean, find legitimate. And we're going to find get to the bottom of this and figure out who killed Princess Di. Yeah, obviously. Um. Caroline, we have something important and exciting, uh, a new way for maybe folks listening right now to uh, connect with us uh, a little closer. Come a little bit closer, as Jay and the Americans asked. Absolutely. Uh, we are up on Patreon.com right now. Uh, listen, this show will always be free. Uh, we're never going to charge you anything to listen to us. Um but if you um, like what we're doing and, and you want a little bit more or you just want to let us know how much you like it, head, head over to Patreon. And um, we've got all kinds of cool rewards, actually. I think the, the best reward will just be kind of the feeling in your heart of knowing you're supporting <laughs> uh, struggling artists. But uh, there are some pretty cool uh, reward tiers. So, um, Carrie, what are some of those lower end ones? Sure. So there's uh, going to be different tiers. So it's kind of customized to however you feel comfortable um, supporting us. And there are different perks, like you get special mini-sodes and other content. I think we were talking about doing a Hellraiser direct-to-TV or direct-to-DVD movie watch-along type of thing. Yes, I, I want to do watch-alongs for all of the... Um We've already watched the first three Hellraiser yeah. films together. Those made it into theaters, <laughs> and they're crazy. So I really want to see what didn't make it to theaters. Mm -hmm. So so we're going to do watch-alongs for the direct to video. Yeah, so that's exciting. <laughs> that's really exciting. I think it's going to be <laughs> It's going to be funny. It's going to be bad. Um, yeah, so we have mini-sodes uh, ready to go. Our first one is going to be on Typhoid Mary, mm -hmm. and that'll be on Patreon, only for Patreon um subscribers we also have a new little a little spin-off series we're excited to get started over yeah. on patreon mm -hmm. um ain't it kitschy and that's where uh, uh carrie's gonna tell me all about uh, different novelty hits and mm -hmm. we'll listen to some uh some just very silly very dumb music uh, it's gonna mm -hmm. be great yeah so if you are a, f a fan of the monster mash or any of those dance crazes or Oh, the purple people eater. All mm -hmm. of those crazy things. We'll be um, talking about them at some point because I think it's just really interesting and weird and funny. Yeah. And uh, and there'll be other stuff. You can vote on different episode topics that we have coming up. So you can try to get the one that you want immediately or you can submit topics. We'll have a Discord server going um, that's just for patrons and it'll be great. So, you know, again, um, this show will always be free. And you can always connect to us with social media at Ain't It Scary at most places, whether that's Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. 
And um, yeah, but if you happen to have a couple extra bucks, and again, you know, it's been a hell of a year. Um, we totally don't require anything more than you just listening. But, you know, if you want to support us, it'll help us get better equipment. Um, we'll be able to do more content, more episodes, maybe video content. Um, it'll just make things easier for us and make us be able to deliver more for you. And it's also about, I think, uh, building a community and bringing Absolutely. this community closer together. Yeah. I mean, I um, I have a lot of friends that I've made through podcast communities. And I think that's just kind of the best part um, is, is connecting to people who are like yourselves. And, you know, if you listen to this show, you're probably a little like us in some way. And any listeners are probably like each other in some way, too. At least you have one interest, and that's everything scary and weird. So we hope that you join us over there at patreon.com slash ain't it scary. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah. Thanks for listening. This show was created by Sean and Carrie McCabe. Music by Kyle Ryan. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at ain't it scary. And check out our website at ain't it scary .com. And now our Patreon at patreon.com slash ain't it scary. And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We'll be forever grateful. Yeah, or just um, tell people about the podcast. Just But the reviews and the ratings do help because that makes it more viewable to other people. But yes, please tell people about us. I don't want to be too needy, but please. If, if your friend's in your car, just put it on. Don't ask them. Be You know, yeah. it's fine. Yeah. And um, yeah, we're looking forward to connecting with you on social, on Patreon, whatever you want to do. So we'll see you next Thursday. This has been a production of Long Boy Media. I'm Richard Serrett. Join me on Strange Planet for in-depth conversations with the world's top paranormal investigators, alien abductees, Bigfoot trackers, monster hunters, time travelers, alternative archaeologists, remote viewers, and more. As I was on the way to Area 51, I was stopping on the side of the road and just taking measurements, and I found this one spot where time slowed down by a fraction of a second. It's not supposed to do that. From the two big categories, animal mutilations and human abductions, you have to conclude that genetic material is being harvested. Well, I reached for a rifle and uh, I, I turned and looked and it was, it was already moving away and it was descending the bluff. I, there's no way any human could have went down it. It was probably a 75 degree angle straight down almost. On Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, we're redefining reality. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Do not go any further. Turn around. Go home.